Good morning. Hopefully all of you guys are dry this morning. You got in into the church all right. It was a little soggy this morning, wasn't it? A little too much rain, maybe. We're getting to the point where it's just like, okay, we're getting a little waterlogged here. But we're here, and we're worshiping together, and we're together as God's people, God's body. So it's amazing to be together with all of you. Thank you guys so much for showing up, for being here, despite the rain, making it. And uh, we really do appreciate when we can gather together. So we've been going through this series uh, on position, about building uh, God's house, about God building his house. And uh, even in the midst of that, we've been doing some small renos even on our literal house that we have here. We just uh, uh, redid some concrete on the front path there that leads down to the road. And we've put some uh, heating coils on the roof on this side, because if you remember from years past... The, the snow buildup and the ice buildup on that side of the, of the roof gets quite uh, treacherous and heavy. And so we've um, found some ways to make it safer for us to be here and, and uh, to make sure the building is in great shape and great use. Because we're all about wanting to build God's house, whether that be us as a people or the place that we meet. We want to make sure that it is welcoming, it is safe and secure for those that come here. And so it's just amazing what we can do together when we allow God to use all of who we are, our resources, to build things. And I see we have just a few boxes left for our shoe boxes. Uh, And it'd be great if we could take those boxes and finish them off and just be able to build into some children's lives around the world uh, and build into them the gospel and build into them the kingdom of God by letting our light shine through uh, the simple message of love uh, and gifts and uh, the gospel that they represent. So we can do that uh, and just do amazing things with that. So last week, we looked at two questions Two questions we looked at. We looked at them like this. In your opinion, what is wrong with the world today and how do we fix it? We looked at those questions. Now, my question for you this week is, how many of you actually went out for lunch and actually talked about that? Probably not that many, which I'm probably, I'm glad that you didn't because those are some heavy conversations and it'll make it feel like a rainy day in your heart. Having to discuss all that's wrong with the world and how to fix it, it can leave you feeling... uh, Pretty, pretty depressed <laughs> when you look at the long list of things that you could, you could think of that are, are wrong with the world today. But here's the thing. We're, as we wrestle through building our house and being, looking at the question of lost and found, here's the, the wrestle that many of us have with the gospel, the good news of Jesus. It's clear and straightforward that there are only two kingdoms. And we see it in First Colossians, or not First Colossians, in Colossians 1, 13 and 14, where it says, He, meaning God, has delivered us from the domain or kingdom of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. There's two kingdoms, the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light, the kingdom of Jesus. And the way it is, it is pictured there for us is that we either serve God or we serve Satan. We either belong to Christ or in our sin to Satan. And we all, 
it lists that and it gives us that idea of, of what the kingdoms, the two kingdoms look like. But here's the thing. We always want to try and create a third kingdom, a third place, kind of like a Switzerland. We want to find a neutral zone in between where we say, well, I'm not, I'm not, that, I'm not serving Satan. How dare you say that I am owned by, run by, serving Satan or serving God? We don't like the polarization that it creates when we talk about the gospel. And so we want to create this neutral ground somewhere in the middle where I'm not that bad. I'm not really doing all that. You know, maybe I'm not perfect at doing this, but I'm not. I'm a good person. And we try to create this middle ground that we can live in that makes us feel better about who we are. And this isn't really new. It's not new to me. It's not new to you in, in trying to create this place where we don't feel as bad about our condition or our place. If you pick up any history book, you'll see the different quote-unquote gospel presentations that people have come up with, that humanity has tried to create in order to figure out how to work in this good versus evil, you know, right versus wrong world. How do we find these two kingdoms of either with God or not with God, against God? How do we justify those two things? Many cultures, societies, and people have tried to come up with a gospel, a good news situation in order to deal with that. And Dr. Glenn Packiam describes it this way. He describes it as the, the premise, problem, and solution. That all these different ways that, that humanity has tried to come up with it, it all fits within that solution. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to lay out a couple of, of uh, premise, uh, pro- problem, solution moments for you throughout history or throughout our society that you may be able to understand and, and see. Now, if we were alive during the Roman Empire, even time when Jesus was walking on earth, this was the Roman gospel. Their premise was is that some men were born to rule, others were meant to be ruled. And the problem was, is that there was too many barbarians in the world, too many people who were unruly. So the solution was, surrender to Rome and live in peace and prosperity. That was their gospel for the world. Now, If you were to root yourself not in a a Roman uh, gospel, but maybe a pluralistic gospel, this is what you might believe, that all religions are basically the same. And that usually means they're bad or they're, they're useless or generic of some sort. And the problem is, is that fundamentalism or extremism in any one of those religions leads to division and violence. And so the answer to that is to cultivate your own spirituality. Pull a little bit of here and a little bit of there and a little bit of everything so there isn't that exclusive nature to your faith or religion or whatever. It's a bit of everything, so it's all-encompassing. That becomes the, the, uh, the, the solution in a pluralistic gospel. Or if you buy into an individualistic gospel, you might find yourself sounding like this where the premise is, you become fully you, you becoming fully you is the best thing that can happen in this world. The full realization of who you were meant to be. The problem is, is that everybody else doesn't embrace who you say you are and who you were meant to be. And the solution to that is then, 
to tune them out, to cancel them. And you just, you do you, you be you. And be free to decide and define and express yourself as you want. Lastly, if you're open to your heart up to more of, say, like a Marxist gospel, you might see the world like this. The premise would be that a world is made up of oppressors and oppressed, those in power and those who have been uh, underneath that power. And the problem is, is that all people are generally good. They're good, except that power is restricting and corrupting their goodness. And so the solution, free the oppressed and punish the oppressor. Those are different views of, of a gospel, of a good news of how we can solve the world's problems and make it a better place. Now, there may be some helpful truths in some of those gospels. There may be some understanding about humanity and how we, we struggle and work together within them. But some of those and all of those worldviews have a deception in them. A deception that is based on replacing a truth, often with a portion of the truth and a lot that isn't true. But none of them are the gospel that Jesus lived and taught because none of them deal with our position. None of them can move us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. None have the ability to do that. John Thompson, who's a pastor in the Toronto area and a theologian, he says it like this. The fundamental question is not the behavior, the sincerity, or personality, but of position. To put this in biblical language, when you stop being a slave to sin, you became a slave to Jesus. You are always owned by someone else. You hear that? Your position is in one kingdom or another. You are always owned or in the possession, the position of someone. The problem with all the other worldviews that we, ta- we talked about and many more that you could, you could list in there, the problem with all those worldviews isn't found in what they get right. It's found in what's missing. The problem is they have no power to move you from being lost to being found. They can move you from doing bad to doing better. They can move you from being ignorant to maybe being informed. They can even move us from thinking less about ourselves and thinking more about others. The problem is that they're all a hamster wheel a cyclical problem-solution, problem-solution, problem-solution wheel that we run on with no end. It transfers us nowhere. It takes us not from being lost to found. It leaves us just running, running in our own strength with nowhere to go. None of them positionally transform us from being a slave to sin to a slave to righteousness from being dead to alive. We read in Ephesians 2, 1 to 5, it says this, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, 
following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the prince or the spirit that is now a work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. All those other worldviews do not carry that power to take from death and bring life. We see it again in the book of Revelation. It repeats this problem and has the identical solution. In Revelation 5, 2 and 5, it says this, And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll in its seven seals. No one on earth, no one else in heaven, no one below the earth was worthy, is worthy to open that seal and to look into it but Jesus. See, the central question in all of this isn't what can a belief do for me? What can a worldview, what can a system help me become from bad to good, in uninformed to informed, uh, you know, thinking of myself to thinking of others? It isn't what can it do for me, but what is the nature, the character of whom or what I believe in. What is it that I believe in is more important than what it can just do for me. For all the, the good that Rome did, it did unspeakable damage. For all the good that religion can do, it too has a very painful past. And for all the good that self-discovery is, it too has a finite field of vision. Every promise or every premise, promise, solution, uh, situation that humanity latches onto is deeply flawed because we are flawed. And so then will be all our solutions. What we need to put our belief in should be something that is so unlike us, so beyond our capacity that it deserves to be believed in. Jackie Hill Perry, in her book, Holier Than Thou, describes how we find this in God because of who he is. She says it like this. If God is holy, then he can't sin. And if God can't sin, then he can't sin against me. And if he can't sin against me, 
Shouldn't that make God the most trustworthy being there is? If we just pause there and think about that, if God is holy, if he is separate, if he is who he says he is, being separate from sin and perfect, and he can't sin, that means that God cannot inflict things upon you that are sin. He can't do bad things to you at all. And if he can't do bad things to you, then wouldn't he become the most trustworthy being, the most trustworthy uh, thing that we could ever imagine? But the challenge is, is, do we actually see God as holy? Do we see him as perfect? We see that even in how Jesus is tempted in, in the desert, don't we? What is the opening line of, of the devil's attack on Jesus? If, if you are the son of God, if you are God, if you are somebody who can be believed in, if you are somebody who can be trusted, if you are somebody who can bring from death to life, if you are all these things, the devil attacks his identity, the same way he attacks our identity. And this is why again and again, the Bible will go to every possible length to give us a vision of Jesus that is fully trustworthy, fully sinless, and thus exclusively capable, exclusively worthy to be a master worth serving. Positioning Jesus as someone in whom we find freedom through submission. We find life by dying to ourselves. He becomes the head of our life, the head of the body of Christ, his followers. But don't we often balk at giving Jesus that much control over our lives? We seem willing to give him a portion of it, the future portion right? We say, God, you got my future. You're my insurance policy. If anything were to happen, I know that I've got it written down that, you know, my books, my name's in that book, so I'm good. I'm taken care of. If some, something bad happens to me, you know, I'm, I, I've, I've got my policy all intact. But what we don't want to do is give him our present. Give him our right now. We balk at wanting to give him that much control. Why? Comes down to how we view him. Is he holy? Is he trustworthy? Is he worthy for us to turn to? Is he worthy for us to go and say, I was once in the kingdom of darkness, now I'm in the kingdom of light. I was a slave to sin, now I'm a slave to righteousness, to Jesus, to do what he asks me to do. No questions asked. Headship, being in control. We, we balk at that. We have resistance to that, having him be able to tell us what to do, when to do it, how to do it. We don't really like that. But he sees headship so differently. There's a, a discussion panel that was happening at, a, at an event, and they're discussing headship. 
And the man said, he spoke up and he said this. He said, headship means that the husband, as the husband, he could buy a truck whenever he felt like it, regardless of how his wife felt about it. That's what headship meant. And in the room, there's a man named Evan Welcher. And he had lost his first wife to cancer. And this is how Evan shared his view on headship. He said this, for me, being the head of my family looked like laundry, dishes, cooking, keeping a food diary, counting her calories, preparing her feeding tube, sitting beside her on the floor of the bathroom next to the toilet as the nausea wouldn't go away. Headship. It's opening the door for her and holding her hand as you walk through endless hospital corridors as she's too weak to walk herself. It's cleaning the house because company's coming and she likes it just so. Headship isn't about what you get or your wife reciprocating or serving you. It's about the husband serving his wife as Christ served the church. Headship. See, the issue isn't just headship, because we'd all sign up to be a part of something like that. We'd all say, wow, am I, you know, we were talking about the Nadons doing a, a marriage group. And if we looked at, if that's what marriage looks like, if that's how my husband is going to treat me, or my wife is going to treat me, sign me up for that type of marriage, where I am, I'm living in that type of unity and community with someone I'll, be, I'll let somebody have headship over me if that's what it looks like. Headship isn't really the issue. It's the nature and the character and the trustworthiness of the one speaking about headship. Can we trust the person we say, you're in control? Are they going to be the type of person that says, great, I can buy a truck whenever I want? Or are they going to be the other type like Evan? My question is this, are you that qualified to be in that headship role? Can I be responsible for being in that type of role? Because anytime we don't let Jesus have that headship in our lives, we're saying we're in control. The answer for me is this, not even close. My transformation is only possible because of Jesus' position as God and my position in him. Who are you trusting with your transformation? Who are you willing to submit to and allow to transform and change your life? And here's what gets even crazier when it comes to God. Jesus, when we commit to him, when we're all in and allow him to transfer us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, to the kingdom of his son, when we allow God to do that for us, we think, wow, isn't that amazing that he has done this for us? But then there's this next thing that happens. Jesus calls all found people to find lost people. 
He doesn't just say, you're found. Great. Get behind me. I'm just going to keep going here. He says, you're found. Walk with me as we go and continue to find more lost people. Mark 1, 17, Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men and women and children and people of all types. Every church needs more found people to use the spiritual gifts, the acquired skills, the natural abilities, the life experiences to love and by the Spirit lead more people who are lost to find Jesus, where he can transfer them from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. See, for Jesus, moving from lost to found is two things. The first is this. It's a call to someone. It's a call to Jesus in his perfect character. He is the way, the truth, and the light. No one comes to the Father read that kingdom of light, except through him. That's our first call. And our second is this, to do something. Whatever you've thought of God's calling on your life, whatever you thought it was or is or could be or should be, we can keep the definitions very simple today. Again, first, calling is you, yourself, Follow Jesus. Allow him to transfer you from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. You have no ability to do that in your own strength. You can't work hard enough, try hard enough, give enough, serve enough. You cannot transfer yourself from death to life by yourself. Allow him to do that. And the second is this. The second calling is you yourself use those spiritual gifts, acquired skills, natural abilities. You use them to ultimately help lost people become found people. So what does that look like? What does that look like for all of us to join together and do that? For us to use what God has given us for what he called us to do. For starters... And ultimately, this becomes the way that he asks us to help lost people become found. In John 17, 20 to 23, Jesus is praying for us in this moment. And he's praying future-oriented for who would believe in the future uh, in him. Who would be transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And he says this, I, being Jesus, do not ask for these only, and that's his first, the, the first disciples, his first followers, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, their testimony, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Do you catch that? We may be one with him so that the world may believe that Jesus was sent by God, that he is trustworthy, that he is the only one who can bring from death to life. But it goes on, the glory that you have given me, I have given them that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one 
so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me, that they may all be one. Where do we start in our our response to follow God and then show others what it looks like to be found? We're called to unity. Not uniformity, but a ruthless protection of being unified together in Christ, loving each other, serving each other, putting each other before ourselves. Why? So that the world may believe that God sent Jesus. Our call to follow him and be fishers of men looks like submitting to his headship and loving him. And it looks like being unified as the church, the body of Christ, loving each other. And when we do this, the world will know. As I was pondering this and working my way through the message, the question that was on my heart for myself is this, is that if I really believe and live this out, and I really believe that what Jesus believed and taught, what he just prayed in John 17 for us, if I really believe that, that there are only two kingdoms, light and dark, and we either serve God or Satan, we either belong to Christ or Satan, should I live with more urgency? Should I live with more urgency that there's so many lost people that Jesus wants to find, that he has called me to be a part of finding? When he says, come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Would I live with more urgency? And yet will I live with more patient grace with each other in our community? There's an urgency to let other people know about who God is and what he can do for them. But at the same time, there needs to be a patient grace within our community that says the unity of who we are holding together, the love we have and the grace we have for each other and the service to each other, that is what will show them that Jesus came from God, that God sent his son and loved them. In Luke 10, 2 to 3, Jesus said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Today, can you hear his call for you to follow him? Can you hear his call for you to abide in him? just like he abides in the Father, to abide in him and in unity with each other. Can you hear his call to be a part of the kingdom of light and to let your light shine before people so they may see your good works done in unity and glorify your Father in heaven? Can you hear his call to you today. Let's pray. God, we thank you.
We thank you that in your love for us, in your perfect love for us, that does not allow any harm to to be done to us by your hand. God, we thank you that in your perfect love, you have found us and you have transferred us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of your son, to the kingdom of light. Only you could do that for us, Jesus. By your perfect life, your death, and you rising from the dead, conquering sin and the grave. Only you can transfer us into the kingdom of heaven. And God, may we be transformed by our loving obedience to you and our submission to your headship in our life. May we go from being slaves to sin to slaves to righteousness. And God, may we join you in helping others see that light, pointing towards you where you can bring them from being lost to being found. If there's anyone here today, either live in the room or online with us, and you've never made that commitment, you've never made that moment where you stood before God and say, God, I need you to transfer me from death to life, from lost to found. I need to be all in with you, God. I can't rule my life, and I can't be deceived that there's some third kingdom somewhere in between the two where good people can just be there. If it's you today and you need to make that commitment and allow God to transform you and bring you into his kingdom, hear his call and choose to allow him to do that in your life today. And for the rest of us that have already allowed him to call us into his kingdom of light and have received that grace and mercy from him, I invite you, found people, to find lost people, to join him, to join us and be unified as the body of Christ so that they may know that Jesus was sent by the Father. May we, may we join with him in finding lost people and seeing them be found. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Jesus.